hello, Redeemer. It is a pleasure to be with you in person, especially after seeing uh, a whole family baptism. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of feeling like I just chugged like four Red Bulls right now. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Uh, but my name is Thomas Kuhn. I am the campus minister with RUF at the University of Nebraska. We're a ministry that partners with Redeemer. And it's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon and, and those of you watching uh, to be with you tomorrow morning or this morning. Should it say tomorrow morning? Um, so yeah, we've been in an interesting time, I don't have to tell you that. Uh, one of the most interesting things about this season of COVID and quarantine is seeing the various ways that people have responded. And some of us have responded by becoming news addicts. We read the news religiously. Others of us have responded by uh, tuning out the news because it makes us anxious. Some of us have gotten extremely creative. I don't know if you've seen the videos going around, but some families are doing like family Olympics uh, with all sorts of crazy new challenges. I've seen uh, videos of these like Ruth Goldberg machines where people are like starting at the top of their house and then somehow they, they hit a marble and a basketball shoots and a girl outside their house. It's amazing to see what people do. Some of us have gotten really into our hobbies. Uh, if you're anything like me, you've tried your hand at sourdough the past couple weeks. It hasn't worked out super well for me yet, but I'm working on it. Uh, others of us have gotten really into our work. Actually, statistics show that since quarantine started, people have been working more. That's sad. And some of us have underworked, right? And some folks have gotten so fed up with this that they're just ready for it to be over and they're just pretending like we're not in the midst of a global pandemic. What do all these responses have in common? These are all ways that we are attempting to deal with a situation that refuses to conform to our expectations. Uh, the word of the year, I think, Matt and I have often joked about this, the word is unprecedented. I mean, just, just listen for the word on newscasts, unprecedented, unprecedented. We're in this unprecedented time. We throw ourselves into hobbies, we throw ourselves into work because we don't know what to do with the season that is different than anything that we've ever experienced. You see, no matter how much we want it to, we can't make COVID do what we want it to. It won't conform to our expectations. And today we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 32. And this passage we're looking at, it shows the Israelites wrestling with a similar situation. Just like us, they find themselves in new territory, facing challenges that they've never faced before. Uh, they lived their entire lives under this oppressive regime under Pharaoh in Egypt. And then the Lord has raised up Moses and called them out of slavery to live as a free people. And this is new. This is unprecedented for them. But unlike us, they aren't dealing with an unpredictable global pandemic. What they're dealing with is a God who refuses to conform to their expectations. And so the book of Exodus, uh, which we're going to be in here, is really it's all about God rescuing his people from slavery and making them into a special nation. And they're a special nation that is supposed to display his character, that's supposed to show something about who he is to the watching world. And so kind of the, the story of Exodus thus far has been um, the people crying out to God. God hears their cry. He raises up Moses. He delivers them out of Egypt in miraculous fashion through these plagues. He delivers them through the Red Sea, decimates the entire army of Egypt. He's fed them. He's given them water. He's led them through a decisive military victory against the Amalekites. And then he gives them the law at Mount Sinai. 
And throughout the, the book of Exodus and throughout the Israelites' experience with God, God has shown himself to be fiercely committed to these people. He's shown himself to be loving in ways that they couldn't imagine. But he's also shown himself to be transcendent. He's shown himself to be unpredictable, to be other. He can't be contained. So as we're looking at this passage today, we're going to ask this question. What do we do with a God who won't conform to our expectations? What do we do with a God who won't conform to our expectations? And in this passage, we're going to see two conflicting responses. So I'm going to read the passage for us and pray, and then we can get started. So Exodus 32 Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses in turn turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back that were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burnt hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. 
For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you killed his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place which I have spoken, which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. Let's pray. Our Father, this is your word. And I pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, that we might see you for who you are. As we're going to see in this passage, we're, we're prone to take shortcuts. And we're prone to think that you're like things that are much smaller than you. But I pray that you would open our eyes to who you are, Lord, that we might see you um, as the transcendent God that you are. And all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what do we do with a God that won't conform to our expectations? If you would look with me back to, to verse 1 of this very long passage, which I thank you for being patient with me as I read through that. Uh, in verse 1 it says, When the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So uh, the story of Exodus thus far, where the, where the people have been, they, they've been in Egypt and then on their way to Mount Sinai. And now they're at Mount Sinai where they are receiving the law, where they are receiving instruction from God. God has brought them out, and he's going to make a covenant with them. And what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement that is uh, more personal than a contract and more permanent than a normal relationship. And God's going to make this covenant with them. And before Moses um, Moses receives this, he, he, uh, he goes, or sorry, when Moses receives the law, he comes and tells it to the people, and the people respond in the affirmative, and they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then the Lord calls him back up on the mountain. Before he goes, 
He puts Aaron in charge. And then he goes up the second time. And, and something to note, he does not give a timeline on his return. He doesn't tell the people when he's going to be coming back. And imagine what that must have been like for the Israelites. Everything good that they had was because of Moses. Every interaction that they had had with God, Moses was standing in the center. He was, he was mediating God's presence to them. You can imagine when, when Moses is gone and they don't know when he's going to come back, there's going to be anxiety. I imagine it would be something like, uh, you know, Scott Frost returns to Nebraska, gets this amazing recruiting class, and then two days before the season starts, he's just like, all right, peace, and goes away, and there's no timeline. Can you imagine just like the chaos in the Nebraska fan camp if something like that happened? That's what's going on in this passage. So that's the situation. What's the response? How do these people deal with Moses' absence? We see at the end of verse 1, they come up to Aaron and they say, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And it seems uh, pretty pretty apparent from this passage that when the people come to Aaron, they're not coming to Aaron like a suggestion. Like they're coming as a mob. Like they're coming up, up, like get up, make us gods. We want you to do this for us. And the translation that we read says gods, but in all likelihood, it actually is singular. It actually is God. Up, make us a God who shall go before us. And the language here is pretty significant. When they're saying make us a God who shall go before us, they're echoing God's earlier dealings with the people. You see, in Exodus 13, if you remember, God goes before the people as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He goes before them. And you can tell for the people that must have been awesome. Like that stuck out to them. Like you remember God when you went before us? We want that to happen again. So basically these, these people come up to Aaron and they're saying that we want God to go before us like he did. Make us a God who will go before us. We like that. So what are the people attempting to do here? Um, Molly and I, my wife, we have some friends um, in St. Louis that have a son named Hewitt. Uh, and we both have babysat for him from time to time. Uh, but I actually babysat for him solo one time. Most of my babysitting has been with Molly. Promise I'm a good babysitter. It's just because she's so much better. That's why I babysit with her. Um, but I was solo babysitting Hewitt. Really had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so I'm just kind of trying to figure out how am I going to entertain this kid for four hours? And so, as you often do with kids, we kind of settled into this rhythm of uh, he just wanted me to throw him on the couch. So he would start in one end of the apartment and just run the entire length of it. And then I would grab him and like slam him on the couch in a fun way, not in a violent way. I'd throw him on the couch. And we did this for 30 minutes. Then we did it for an hour. And then we did it for longer than that. And I knew after we hit it about an hour and a half, I'm like, I've made it huge mistake. <laughs> like, I, all I was trying, when I tried to be the adult in this situation, I'd be like, okay, Hewitt, let's, let's change it up. Might be time for you to, you know, snack or, or, or take a nap. He's just like, no, no, we're going to do the couch thing. He's like, again, again, again. You see, Hewitt resisted because he didn't have a concept of me outside of being the fun couch guy. 
He couldn't imagine me being bigger than that one fun thing that we did together. So he was trying to catch lightning in a bottle and just have that be the only thing that we do together. He would say to me, again. And see, that's what we see going on in this passage. The people are saying to God, again, do what you did before. We want that. We know what we need. You see, what the people weren't doing in trying to build this golden calf, they were not attempting to worship another God. They weren't outright rejecting the Lord. They weren't intending to, at least. In fact, you see, whenever Aaron makes this golden calf, they respond by saying, oh, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. They associate this idol with God. And then Aaron responds by proclaiming a feast to the Lord. So it's clear what what they're trying to do, they're attempting to transform God into something that made sense to them. They're, They're attempting to domesticate God. They're reducing him to what he had done for them in the past. They're piecing together some bits of their past experience plus God. And I imagine they're kind of trying to do, I don't know if you've seen those 1980s Reese's commercials. Like, it's just the people, like, kind of strutting down the street. One guy's got chocolate, one girl's got peanut butter, and they're just walking, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and they just run into each other. And, you got, and the guy's like, oh, you got peanut butter in my chocolate. I'm like, oh, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. And the result is delicious, right? That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to combine some of the things that they know, which is idolatry. Every nation in the world, outside of Israel, would have worshipped graven images. They were the only ones. And so they're trying to combine this rescue that God has given them with this common practice of idolatry. And instead of the result being delicious, it's horrifying. That's what's happening here. So what was the result of this? What was the result of their attempt to transform God? You see, from the people's perspective, things are going pretty well, actually. In verse 4, when Aaron makes this golden calf, They say, oh, this is your God, O Israel, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's as if they're saying, finally, a God who makes sense to us, a God we can recognize, a God that helps us to fit in. But then we see from the Lord's perspective, it's not how things are going. The Lord says to Moses, when he sees the idolatry happening among the people, he says, go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. You see, from the Lord's perspective, it's cut and dry. They have just violated this commandment that he gave them to have no graven images. They violated it completely. And the Lord calls them on it. And later passages in the Bible actually reflect on this. Uh, Psalm 106 in particular says this about uh, this passage. It says that the people of Israel exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Let that sit in. They exchanged the glory, the, the, the weight, the godness of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior. And then in Acts 7, when Stephen reflects on this passage, he says that what the people are doing, it says, in their hearts, Israel turned back to Egypt. So from the perspective of the people, all they're doing is combining a little bit of their experience with God. But from God's perspective, they're rejecting him completely. You see, to add anything to God is to reject him. That's what we see here. So how does this relate to us today? I think this kind of begs the question, 
uh, what are we attempting to transform God into today? How are we attempting to shrink God down to where we can understand him, to where he can fit in a box? I think we need to ask, what, what values from our culture, what values from our family or our story do we project onto God in order to make him make sense to us? I think an, an obvious one that comes to mind for me is we, we try to shrink God to our political vision. We try to shrink him. You see, we live in a world that's pretty polarized. And so we imagine that God himself also must be polarized. You know, some of us will, will say, well, you know, God cares primarily about individuals. Others of us will say, well, God cares primarily about systems. But in reality, God is above all of these things. That doesn't mean he doesn't care. That just means he's above them. You see, in the Bible, we find both affirmation and critique of all political spheres. So, you know, traditionally, if, you're, if you find yourself on the right, uh, you typically think that if you affirm something about someone, you are affirming everything about them. But God actually affirms without excusing. God affirms that we were created in his image, yet sinful. Or if you're on the left, you might tend to think if you critique something about someone, then you hate all of them. But that's not what God's like. You see, God critiques without despising. He says that we're sinful, yet created in his image. You see, God, God transcends, and we try to put him in a box. But how else do we do this? I think we do this also in the church. You don't have to go too far nowadays to hear someone saying something like, um, God doesn't care about X, he cares about Y. And the one popular now is, you know, God doesn't care about social issues. He cares about the gospel, or he cares about our personal piety, or he cares about our doctrinal precision. And I want to affirm something in that, that the church has erred in the past, and people are right to recognize that. But what we're doing there is we're trying to put God in a box yet again. The reality is that there, God is concerned both with our piety and with justice. The same God who said, be holy for I am holy, the same God who wants us to look like him in our morality and our piety also said, let justice roll down. We tend to separate these things and in God they're held together perfectly. You see, we can't imagine a God who is both of these things, yet that is the God of the scriptures. So we see we're not so different from the Israelites after all. We too try to transform God into something that makes sense to us. But what other response do we see in this passage? If you look with me to verse 11, you see the second response here. And in verse 11, we see uh, Moses. It says, but Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? You see here this word implored, Moses imploring, it's, it's, it can kind of mean something like you're, you're making yourself sick with grief. Like it's, an, it's an emotional, visceral response. And that's how Moses is talking to the Lord. But how does he implore the Lord? What's his tactics? He, he kind of has a three-point argument here. He says first to God, these are your people, right? It's like how maybe an angry spouse might say the other spouse, like, go get your children, right? That's your son. That's what Moses is saying. 
But then second, he says, what will Egypt think? And if you're familiar with the story of uh, the plagues, you'll know that constantly God is talking about his glory being proclaimed over Egypt and over the gods of Egypt. God is like very intentional about trying to flex on Egypt. And Moses is reminding him of that. Like, you remember all that time where you flexed on Egypt? What are they going to think? What are they going to think if you destroy this people? And then third and finally, he says to God, remember your promise. Remember Abraham, remember Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. And we see that the response here, the Lord is pleased by this request. It says the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And just one thing I want to note here, maybe just kind of to zoom back and think about the story of Moses as it relates to this. This Moses who just had this interaction with God is the same Moses who earlier in Exodus asked God to choose someone else because he was bad at speaking. And, and it's true that a lot of people say, like, public speaking is the thing that should give you the most anxiety. Like, it's, it's tough. But imagine doing that in front of God. And yet here he is with, like, a well-reasoned argument in front of God. Like, what in the world happened to bring him from this place of not being able to, to even speak, to holding audience with God. So Moses implores the Lord. But look with me to verse 15. We see here that Moses, after he has implored the Lord, he comes back down to the people. And what does he do here? In verse 19, it says, his anger burned hot when he saw what the people were doing. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. And sometimes when we see this, we might think that this is uh, just like rash anger from Moses, that he shouldn't have done something like this. Um, but we, get, we really have no indication in the text that that's, that's what it is. Uh, instead, we see here that Moses is reflecting the anger of God at sin. His response actually mirrors God's response. And again, just to step back and think about Moses We've known Moses as a man who, is, who has rash anger before, haven't we? And yet here we see him using his anger to respond how God responds. He is imaging God. But not only that, he is, he is coming down the mountain and destroying these tablets. He's not just doing it because he's mad. He's doing it to demonstrate something to the people. He comes down to the bottom of the mountain. He sees the people, and he smashes the tablets that have the Ten Commandments on them. It's as if he is saying to the people, this is what your sin has done. This is what you're doing. You're cutting yourself off from God. He's giving them a visual. He's trying to grab their attention. And then not only that, he, he gets the golden cap and he burns it and destroys it. This, Moses is decisive here. So he confronts the people, but then he confronts Aaron. Aaron, who's his older brother, who's supposed to be the one who's more articulate, the one who's more naturally gifted, Moses confronts him, and he frankly makes Aaron look silly. He confronts him. And this is the same Moses whose rash anger led him to kill an Egyptian. Now his anger looks like God's anger. And this is the same Moses who, when he was confronted about that rash anger by a couple of Israelites, ran away into the wilderness. And now, he's the one who's coming back to confront God's people in their sin. 
And then Moses continues on in seeking justice. In verse 25, he comes to the gate of Israel's camp and he says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And what he's doing is he's drawing a separation between at the gate is where Israel begins and on the other side is not Israel. And it's as if he's saying to the people, listen, if you want to be a part of Israel, come to me. If not, get out. He's being decisive. He tells the people the will of the Lord in this situation. In verse 27, he says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And essentially the command he gives them is to seek repentance from the people and to punish those who don't repent. Moses goes from a rather timid man to the instrument of God's justice among his people. How did this happen? You see, rather than attempting to transform God, we see in Moses' response that he is transformed by God. Moses is transformed by God. But how does this sort of transformation happen? Uh, In my early 20s, uh, if you would have ever stepped inside any sort of room that I lived in, there would be a couple markers that you would have seen. Uh, The first was a Dale Earnhardt number three flag. North Carolina, so NASCAR's kind of in the blood. Another thing you would see is a uh, Boondock Saints poster. Uh, you would have seen a wicker lamp from the 80s, and you would have seen a dingy striped ottoman that I just loved. Because, you know, you got to have something to chill in your room, right? But for the last couple of years, these artifacts have slowly disappeared. They've either made their way to the basement, or they've gone to Goodwill, or they've just been thrown out altogether. And now, if you step into the space where I live, you'll see calligraphy, you'll see succulents, you'll see rifle paper company calendars, and you will see more accent pillows than anyone needs to see. What happened? Did I go to school for interior design? No. Did I get super into Pinterest? No. Well, yes, but that's another story. Did I start watching more HGTV? No. What happened was I got married to Molly. All of this change in me came from me being in relationship with Molly. And the artifacts of my life before her just started falling away. My marriage to Molly transformed me. You see, in the same way, we are transformed in relationship. It's how it happens. Moses was transformed into a man who embodies God's character in relationship with God. And if we want to be transformed, we can only do it in relationship with God. And I want to be careful here. Throughout this point, uh, I have been lifting up Moses as a a good example. And one thing we want to stay away from a lot of times when we're preaching is for the sermon to be like, Moses was good, be like Moses. And that's not what I'm trying to do here. This is not a be like Moses sermon. This is a call to be in relationship with the same one that Moses was in. Because you are not Moses, and you're never going to be Moses, and that's okay. But you have access to relationship with God, and if you're in relationship with God, you can expect to be transformed in the same way that Moses was. So how can we be transformed by God? How can we avoid making God in our own image? I think two steps that just come to mind for me. First, we need to become aware of our own particularity. We need to become aware of our own particularity. What do I mean by that? We need to be able to ask ourselves the question, 
what is my story? Who has shaped me? Or as Matt asked earlier in the series, who has named me? What aspects of God's character excite me? What parts of the Bible do I love? And what aspects of God's character do I want to stay away from? And what parts of God, they, they just terrify me. But even more than that, you need, we need to be able to ask this question, what does my family care about? What does my family care about? What do they avoid talking about? What does my community care about? What do they avoid talking about? You see, as we become aware of our own particularity, as we can understand more and more who we are, we will be open to being transformed into God's image. We have to know where we are. Transformation begins right where we are. So first, we must become aware of our particularity. But second, we must allow God's word to press in on us and reorient us. We must drink deeply of the scriptures to understand who God is. We must study his ways carefully. And we must acknowledge our particularity, acknowledge our stories, and ask the Holy Spirit to reorient us, to convert our minds again, to turn us into people who love what God loves and who hate what God hates. What does this look like practically? Because it can kind of sound like it's up here. I think, for me, as I think about this, um, we should read the parts of Scripture that make us uncomfortable. If you're anything like me, uh, emotions don't necessarily come natural to you uh, in terms of talking about them. Uh, so if you're anything like me, you should read the Psalms. Read the Psalms and see the way that, that God desires a deep emotional relationship. Or maybe you're uncomfortable with anger. You should read the Psalms there too. You should read about God's anger and ask him to transform you. You see, if we want to be transformed, we have to press into the areas where we are avoiding discomfort. Transformation happens by leaning into what makes us uncomfortable. So how do we wrap all of this up? We've seen in this passage that God refuses to conform to our expectations. And we've, received, we've seen that we can respond to this primarily in two ways. We can attempt to transform God. We can shrink him to where he makes sense to us. And ultimately what this is, is idolatry. We lose God when we attempt to shrink him. But conversely, we can be transformed by God. And this happens in relationship. And we see in the story of Moses, someone who was transformed by God more and more into his image. And we see this very clearly in the last part of the passage. After Moses has confronted the people and carried out God's justice, he tells the people this in verse 30. He says, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. What I want you to notice here is that Moses is, is honest, straightforward about what's happening here. He says, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement because he knows that if their sin is going to be covered, it's going to have to come from God. You see, Moses does not seek to downplay the seriousness of sin, and yet he still goes up to God in hopes of making atonement for the people. As Moses ascends the mountain to make atonement for the people's sin, he points beyond himself. He points us to Jesus. 
It points us to Jesus who would ascend the mountain to make lasting atonement. You see, Jesus was another leader of God's people, another mediator between God and man like Moses. But his life was characterized by absolute and total submission to God the Father in everything. Another way of saying this is there were no golden calves in Jesus' life. There were no ways that he tried to shrink God down. His was a life of perfect relationship with the God who is life in itself. And by trusting in him, we're invited into this transformative relationship. So if we want to be transformed by God, we can only do this through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has cleared away our golden caps, and he invites us to real and transformative relationship with God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we have been invited into relationship with you. Lord, that um, you have um, made a way for us. Lord, that we don't have to try and make you fit inside a box. No, Lord, we can be transformed in relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.